1: Team Human is an ad-free community effort supported by real people like Jaden Pye, Connie, Gabrin Gray, Yosef Needleman, and Craig Thayer. Join them and me and the rest of the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get access to our Discord channel, live salons, free admission to live events, and our Team Human team feed with special interviews, talks, and rare conversations. See you there. are on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a place to demonstrate we're more than our programming, we're also our programmers, capable of changing who we are and what we believe based on changing conditions on the ground. We are in conversation with ourselves and everyone else, negotiating what it means to be alive together. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, science journalist, author of the forthcoming book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion and Persuasion, and fellow happy mutant,
2: David McRaney. I truly do believe on the other side of this hump is a better way of being and a better way of being together and a better way of having a democracy or whatever you want to call the thing that we sort ourselves into. But yeah, we get to live through the weird time.
1: David will help us understand how people can change their minds and why that's such good news for all of us. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I'm not a man of faith, as it's commonly understood, but I am starting to wonder if we're getting to a moment where we human beings need to assert just a bit of sacred mystery to the goings-on in this dimensional neighborhood we call reality. I've been thinking a lot about technology and automation and robots and, and AI and whether some of the transhumanists are correct in their hope that machines can somehow carry on the human project, What? whatever that may be, after we all succumb to climate change or some other disaster of our own making, or even just random calamity. You know, atheist though they may be, the techno-futurists, they do hope to upload something about themselves or human beings to the cloud, even if it's just ego. They want to get something up there before going extinct. It's just that the things they want to infuse into our robot successors, they're necessarily only the things that can be digitized. And the problem with that, as I see it, is that the digitizing may leave a bunch of stuff out. We can encode an awful lot about human beings onto hard drives, from Finnegan's Wake or architectural plans for the pyramids, uh, the Kama Sutra, right? Those files can be used to reconstitute certain human experiences. But for whom? You know, will the robots get what Kendrick Lamar really means by, I'm Machiavelli's offspring, I'm the king of New York, king of the coast, one hand, I juggle them both, the juggernauts all on your jugular, you take me for jokes? I mean, do we even know what that means in an exact way? Or is it more of a sensibility that washes over us, something that comes through when we soften our focus and let the words kind of move through our bodies? And is that letting go? Is that itself an act of faith, a surrender to something more about human expression and experience than can be defined? I mean, we got to face it, technologies can or will do pretty much everything better than we can, other maybe than comforting or, or loving other living things, but there's even some evidence they're getting better at that too. You know, their ability to administrate a systems approach to civilization's many challenges, that it far exceeds anything we humans can muster. And if we believe that statistics and probabilities are the best tools for making difficult choices about you know the ethics and existential risks of the few versus the many we may as well do what the machines tell us even James Lovelock who we had on the show 2 years ago now the the environmental thinker behind the Gaia hypothesis he says that he believes we have to accept the robots eventual success as the primary stewards of this planet's future and optimistically he thinks that the robots are going to do their best to keep us around for as long as possible because like any biological life you know computers also need the planet to stay cool in order to function efficiently and that cooling Lovelock says is best accomplished by keeping life and humans here somehow metabolizing the sun's heat maintaining that kind of homeostatic balance. But I'm thinking there's another reason to keep us around too. And that's simply our faith that there may be something more going on here than our technologies can experience or comprehend or or believe. The stuff that gets too easily auto-tuned away, the, the junk DNA, the unknowables from love and awe to purpose and meaning, how do we hang on to those things instead of you know, pathologizing belief systems as as uh, obsessive compulsive disorder or or magical thinking or or dangerous superstition? I've been a proponent, as people who read my stuff know, I've been a proponent of truth and clarity. And I've spent a majority of my career in a rather iconoclastic mission to deconstruct falsehoods and propaganda. But I don't mean to destroy our ability to maintain faith. I simply want us to recognize that our myths, as valuable as they may be to our social and spiritual well-being, they are human creations. They are provisional. The myths are more like a scientific model than a certainty. But What I am growing more certain of is that this mythical component of the human experience, it is essential and it is real. It's going to be more important to the robots than our ability to help keep the planet cool, our ability to defend our Faith, not faith in anything in particular, but the ability to maintain faith itself that there's something going on, it may just end up being our best argument for sustaining the human project. I'm really stoked about today's guest. Are we allowed to say stoked anymore? I think it's fine. I think it conveys meaning. I originally... New David McRaney from our shared love for Boing Boing. We were both happy mutants. And that's where he started the podcast, You Are Not So Smart, which also became a really fun book about how dumb we are, but why that's really okay. David has a, a similarly uh, a humility-inspiring book coming out in a few months called How Minds Change, which is definitely helping me see our plight as less inevitable. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Well, Mazel Tov on this book. Congratulations. This book's going to do well with um, with people I don't like. <laughs> you know, that sort of behavioral economics, uh, uh, freakonomics, can contagion, uh, tipping point. Here's how, you know, you're everyone's buying Ford trucks. Here's how you can change their (laughs) minds to buy Chevy trucks instead. Right,
2: right. (laughs) I've done just a few lectures about it. And that's that seems to be what people are expecting. And there's a real, like, I mean, that's what I, I had to change my own mind about a lot of stuff to, for this to make sense. Like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't ever want to write a book or write anything where I pretend to be the expert and then I go look for confirmation of everything that I think is true. <laughs> why, so, else write,
1: why else write a book? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I, I didn't want to like invent terms, you know, that were like, you know, that would become part of the zeitgeist, right? Uh, but that made it really hard to write a book. And I'm constantly hmm. go, going around and asking people how things work, and they're like, hey, you're asking questions nobody knows the answer to yet. So good luck on your journey. So it <laughs> that made it hard, yeah.
1: But it's interesting. I mean, you know, I just had uh, Renee Hobbs on this show a, a few weeks ago. She writes these great textbooks on propaganda. Hmm. You know, for college students to recognize. And and I started to asking asking her because I was getting so upset with how stupid people seem to be right now. You know, <laughs> and, and and I was starting to think, well, you know, we're are the folks who say democracy doesn't. Even work are they correct? That rather than giving people this powerful tool, what if we just use public relations to get them to vote in the ways that we want them to vote? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> the Republicans are doing it, right? You know, so why do, why shouldn't the left, if that's what I even am anymore, why shouldn't the left use the same techniques? Oddly enough, you know, the, if you look at the, the history of people who write books and, and study how people's minds change, most of them are, you know, Lipman and Bernays or Ogilvy or the neurolinguistic programming people, you know, looking at all that. But it's, it's, it's not that. I mean, it's not in the end what – and this is what, why I, I needed you. On the show, which just means I needed you in my life right now. <laughs> that's the way I book um, is to help me realize, and our viewers realize that that I guess I'm I'm interested in our ability. To change because mm-hmm. if we can change the way you're showing, it refutes this sort of nihilistic inevitability of our impending catastrophe.
2: I realize now I've got a very punk perspective all of a sudden because I'm very optimistic and think that everything's going to work out. Uh, but also, I'm acknowledging we right now get to live, we're living in that weird time. Uh, there is epistemic chaos. Um, we have a lot of new tools and new frameworks in which to engage with one another, to debate, to deliberate, to argue, to persuade, to disagree. Some of it is there's cultural lag from the old ways of doing it, and some of it is evolutionary lag from just how brains interact with one another. And yeah, we're living through the weird time. The internet is the psychedelic uh, freakout that was uh, that, a lot, that people like McKenna and Leary and, and Ramdas hoped we they wanted they wanted everybody to drop acid so we could experience it right well we we'll, we just get that by just going on reddit now so right. or facebook or twitter or whatever and yeah we have to not only build a vocabulary and a literacy for that but we also have to pull some old lessons back from the early days of rhetoric. And then we have to apply all, all sorts of stuff we've learned re- recently in just the last decade in social science and neuroscience. And so on the other, I truly do believe on the other side of this hump is a better way of being and a better way of being together and a better way of having democracy or whatever you want to call the thing that we sort ourselves into. But yeah, we get to live through the weird time. That's how the book started. Like in about 2016, the word post-truth became the word of the year in the Oxford Dictionary. Mm. and there was a moral panic after that, and that's where the book started for me. It was like I had some skepticism about that. It was like it, fe- it looked – all the articles that were like you can't change people's minds, facts don't work on people, all that stuff, it felt moral panicky to me, and I knew that the evidence suggested that it was just more complicated than it was being presented, and at the same time, same-sex marriage, the the attitudes and beliefs and values and norms around that in the United States had just – Completely 180. It had just flipped. We had gone from 60% opposed to 60% in favor over about a decade, but pointedly in 2011 and 12. And very, I I just imagined you could take people from now and put them in a time machine and send them back just 10 years, and they would argue with themselves as if they were arguing over a wedge issue today with someone on the other side of something. And And I was, I just wanted to know, like, clearly. Yes, we can change our minds. So, what is happening in people's brains when they do and do not? And what works, what doesn't? And that's how the whole thing started was sort of off of that, launching off that moral panic that preceded COVID and the insurrection and all the other weird stuff that's happened since.
1: All the other layers. No, but it's true. It's like that. I do remember that moment of, of, uh-oh, we're untethered from the truth. And it's it's scary, but at the same time, it's like as a parent, you know, there's a moment when your seven or eight-year-old kid lies for the first time. <laughs> they lie to you, and then you go, oh, shit, how will I ever know? Mm. Now that they've invented lying or learned to lie, they're untethered. It's it! That's it! It's, I'm never gonna know my child is anything. It's like, yeah. well, no, there's there's other governing mitigating circumstances, and, and they get used to lying or not lying. You know, it's not the end of the world when your kid lies. Yeah. It's part of the process.
2: Yeah, that's what happened. Like what actually happened around about 2016 was everybody joined the conversation. And then now it's the oldest story, right? Like there used to be all these information gatekeepers. Uh, whether you think about it in terms of media gatekeepers or people who are shaman or priests or uh, people in academia, there were just people who read the stuff before you did. And there were people who told you what to think.
1: Right. And then the net comes and Clay Shirky says, you know, here comes everybody. I remember after Trump got elected, I said, Clay, a, a one-line <laughs> email. and said, here came everybody. That is,
2: that's it. Clay, is t- he, he predicted a lot with that book. Because when everybody joined the conversation— the, there used to be a very select, privileged class who got to debate stuff and who would read books and say, "Is this a good book?" And then right. now we're all now we're all in a meme space, having this having those kind of conversations, and so a whole lot of people with different values and different motivations and different life experiences and different everything's are joining in, and in some cases, those people are joining in and they're having the conversations that we've that the privileged classes has, has been having for a couple hundred years, they're having them for the first time. And I feel like flat earthers are a great way to like, like demonstrate that. Like when flat earthers are debating the, uh, the facts and the concepts behind something that we've already had the debate about I'll say we as in like science and academia. Right. And the way that I'm watching, I'm watching them evolve. I got a, I got a chance to, um, Use some of the persuasion techniques in the book alive on stage with Mark Sargent in Sweden. They invited me to a conference there after that um, Behind the Curve documentary came out and um, the more I looked into Flat Earthers, the more I talked to Flat Earthers, the more I saw their problems and their questions are the same problems and questions that people in the early days of astronomy and physics were having with with how do we determine what's going on here with the with the roundness or lack thereof of the Earth and, uh-huh. where it, and it's and where it's going through space and these things seem like anomalies and how do I sort it all out, but they fundamentally as a cohort distrust scientific institute they distrust institutions they distrust authority and there are many reasons why a person would distrust authority. They found each other online. They became a, a their own community with their own uh, norms and their own social pressures amongst each other. Now they're in this place like, okay, we disagree about all sorts of stuff, but we do agree on one thing. The Earth is flat, or, or at least this, the Earth is not round. Now they're trying to to see, to find evidence for the thing that they have joined together around. And they're doing scientific studies that are almost identical to the scientific studies that eventually gave us the knowledge that the Earth is oblate oblate spheroid. And so I feel like they just won't last. Like in t- about 20 years from now, they'll have done so much research and they'll have disproved, they'll have had so many anomalies appear in their model, they'll have to f- flip the model. And then this is also what started happening in that time period when, we, when everybody joined the conversation. Like this conversation, they're going to have to have the conversation they weren't invited to. And then once they finish having that, we'll eventually kind of converge. I, that's that's my optimistic right. view. Right.
1: They have to recapitulate the whole conversation again. I mean, that that the thing is, you know, uh, Korzybski, the the brilliant Alfred Korzybski, that the thing that he said was so special about human beings is like unlike you know most animals we don't have to learn through experience we have language and text so that we can consolidate the experiences of other generations and then have a new generation move on yeah. without having to learn how gravity works and all those things yeah. so it's it's a little i guess at the beginning though of a new populist movement we're going to redo it and some of those investigations were good so you know so i you know you were a boing boinger you know i mean <laughs> yeah. we were we were all uh, at that early moment of the internet and once once we those of us who experienced computers and the internet for the first time we were exposed to sort of the read write reality you know we'd been living in a read only reality of television. Yeah. Now we're in a read-write universe and we start looking, oh my gosh, what could we what could we write now? <laughs> you know, and I got interested in Judaism and money, thinking, oh, money systems. Those are sacred for no good reason and religion. We could rewrite that and reorient ourselves. And sure, there's a lot of reinventing the wheel that goes on. And so now you know, I look at something like uh, uh, I get in trouble for this now, but I look at something like the blockchain movement, mm-hmm. and I, I'm like, yay! You know, we're gonna rewrite money. But then, boo! We're rewriting it the same way, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the same speculative, you know, capitalist way that we we did the other kinds of money.
2: I feel you as one of these like, as a boing boinger, optimistic, uh, sci- love the cyberpunk stuff, happy mutant, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we are all. Um, we're all just impatient in our, in our optimism. Cause we're like, come on. Like, like we're like, what 30 years from star Trek, the next generation, we can do this. Right. But yeah. no, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit farther away than that. Uh, but
1: <laughs> yeah. And then we just got to hope that the sea levels, you know, behave themselves. Yeah,
2: I, I say all this yeah. without, without a doubt there, there are existential threats that, uh, if we don't jump on top of quickly or, we're going to have to like, uh, solve the blockchain thing in our caves. But so we need to uh we yeah, there are things that we need to have on our high up on the priority list for sure.
1: In your in your appearance with with Michael Sargent, did you like do some kind of mentalism thing with him on stage? Not
2: mental. Like, so this is an important point. Like uh in this book, I present it in stages. So it's like how we how minds are made, how they form on their own, like human minds, but also all minds, uh the just how you construct a model of reality and you interact with it based off of experiences and priors and all that sort of thing and then what happens when you encounter something that calls into question the model then it moves to what you were saying earlier we have this unique all animals that have complex nervous systems can learn which means they can change their minds will change Uh, but humans have this very nice thing called language and arguing and deliberation and there's great evidence that our system for exchanging information back and forth through whatever medium is unique to to our species. And we have a system for both producing arguments and evaluating arguments that are separate from one another. And so the book goes from how mind's made to how a mind changes to then how minds change other minds. And then you move up into how groups interact in that way and then how that becomes social change. In all of that, there's a point where you have to start talking about persuasion and i'm very clear that persuasion is not coercion so if you're using propaganda or manipulation of some kind where the other person has no their agency's not been put that they haven't been told i am attempting to persuade you and you have the option to reject my arguments then
1: that's not fair yeah i wrote a whole book That was my first you know big book coercion <laughs> yeah, was yeah. about that <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, and yeah. how we were reporting the the co- coercive persuasion techniques of one medium now onto the internet and how that was going to go nuts.
2: So yeah, persuasion is different. And one of the things that I found in persuasion is I, I tried to find groups of people who were, who were actually doing it practice instead of theory. And I found deep canvassing in Los Angeles and I flew out there three times and, and, and trained in their technique and went door to door with them. They have this technique that they've uh, perfected over like 15,000 conversations recorded on video uh, where they a B tested and iterated until they've had a technique that works really well to persuade people to change their attitudes toward uh, you started out with LGBT issues. And then it's moved into all sorts of domains.
1: Right. But it's not, I mean, I don't know if it's evil or not, but the, the issues they're on, they're on generally on what I would call the good side of issues and the techniques that they're using are just establish basic rapport with the person really listen to them mm-hmm. and 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 find out I mean it's a very team human technique what is you know've I've been a Trump whisperer really for the <laughs> last 10 years what does he really mean what right. is he really afraid of and I try to translate it so we can all understand here's what they're afraid of right get it you know mm-hmm. and that's real and but then they they try to then they sort of pace you in that way and then lead you in a hopefully more progressive direction, I guess.
2: Yeah, so it's important to say like, no matter what it is they're doing, their technique works and, it, and it's it's really impressive. And it's been researched pretty deeply now. And, uh, and they just go door to door and they've got it down to the point where uh, successes usually happen in like 20 minutes. It's really impressive. So I, I studied them and then I went and met with the people in Texas who perfected something called street epistemology. And I was astonished to find their uh, technique, if you put it in steps, it's the same steps, pretty much. Uh, and then I found um, Smart Politics. They're do they all they're doing things on values, same same steps. And then when I went to my like scientific brain trust, uh, people, all sorts of people, are pulling out things. They're like, this is very similar to motivational interviewing, which is uh, a therapeutic technique for um, usually for addiction or for alcoholism. These persuasion techniques are all the same, and they're similar to therapeutic models of change because. The way brains work in that dynamic is the way brains work no matter where you are, which which sort of uh, suggests that there's there's the evolutionary components, or if there, are, there's some sort of convergent components cultural wise and all that. So, I studied all these things and I got a pretty good framework for it, and I tr- I tried to train in it so that I could actually do it. When I first tried it, uh, especially when so I went to Sweden with that and talked to Mark Sargent, and It worked. I mean, like all I wanted to do was get him to the point where he could would agree that he had a certain way of of figuring out what is and isn't so and that it was and that he was driven to his current conclusions by by some by certain motivations. And I wanted him to be open to changing his mind if the methods that he was using were shown to be either they could be improved or that the methods you were using brought something that he wasn't expecting. And we once we got to that point, we sort of ended the conversation and, and then it was, we had built this like, we ended up like being able to hang out and like order food and drinks and be cool mm. with each other. Because all these techniques, like you said, they start with building rapport. And the reason rapport is so important is, as social primates, we need to be able, just like in a good relationship, we need to be able to disagree effectively And productively, right? I I need to know that you're, we're, you, we're, we're good here, but you have different experiences than I have, different motivations than I have. And if we were facing back to back, you'd be seeing a different world than I was seeing. And you may, you may see things a little bit differently than me or come to different conclusions, but we can both gain from openly sorting that out with each other. And I can disagree with you in a way that gives us the opportunity to get a more complete worldview. And we, we are innately attuned to that. And that means when you start a conversation with someone who you disagree with on anything, if you communicate you don't have to actually explicitly say this, but if it is interpreted that you're saying to them, you should be ashamed for the way you think, feel, or behave, it's over. They're not going to engage any right. further. Like you have uh, the social primate part of us will eject from that conversation. Right. And so all these techniques start with that.
1: First off, if you sat down with, say, Sean Hannity, or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I got invited on Steve Bannon's podcast. Oh, wow. And I was going to do it to really try to engage, like you're saying, as that opportunity. But then I just thought going on was going to, just the fact that I was going on was going to, Communicate more than whatever I did mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm speaking with them. So I said, Look, I'd love to meet you. We could have lunch. I'll fly down to DC. I'll, but I want to talk with you, but I don't want to do this um, for an audience. But if you've sat down with Sean Hannity or Bannon, do you think this would still work?
2: I'm complete, 100% confident it would. But I also know that that rapport building stage might take weeks for for some people. Right? right.
1: Like the Mormons, when they come, they knock and they keep. Uh, they keep visiting before, <laughs>
2: yeah, Mormons you know, sign global. up
1: yeah. in the first half hour. You yeah,
2: know? and if let's say it's your a relative, like your your mom or your dad or somebody who you disagree with on politics, like the past arguments with them may have created a, a really poor social dynamic that you need to repair before you can even start the using one of these persuasion techniques that are in the book. You need to rebuild the relationship first before you can start in on, you need to establish trust and once yeah. the trust is established, we can then disagree in a different kind of way. I mean, and that makes sense. You know, We, as social primates, need to be able to trust the other people around us so that we can then take take advantage of their differing perspectives and their differing experiences and so on.
1: Yeah, I guess. So there's some things, you know, and I'm sure a lot of uh, uh, people listening have had the same experience. I'll have an experience with a relative where I feel like I get down to a core belief that is so alien or (laughs) wrongheaded that I kind of, I throw up my arms and give Mm. up. So, you know, I was talking with a relative of mine about, um, you know, Trump and Mexicans and something else. And finally she, you know, I was talking about the uh, oppression of these other people and how they're being treated. And she was like, well, yeah, but that's them. And I was like, oh, you mean them, not us. She's like, yeah them that's them not us Mm -hmm. and i was like i got i mean i guess what i should have done gone is gone all the way back and said okay what makes them that's exactly Yes. different what's different than us
2: that's how these techniques work so like in a lot of these (laughs) the early stages you're trying to figure out what is the what's the reasoning behind their position and then once you it takes sometimes people will communicate reasons that are not the actual reasons because they haven't done any kind of introspection to do. So you're sort of going through some guided metacognition to help them discover the true motivations behind what it is they're proposing. And once you are there, you have to start over and go, now this is where you're at. You need to now try to explore what leads to that motivation. Right. And, And this is not, a difficult thing to do this is uh, there's a lot of effort involved there. We have a we lose patience. I say I say in the book like I don't think anyone's unreachable or unchangeable after after this project. but I do understand that we have a lot of frustration about this, and I think that frustration is more on our side than their side. The frustration is we're using poor techniques, poor tools, and poor uh, emotional regulation, and it's leading to poor outcomes
1: right. We get upset. I yeah. get upset and storm out, right. That's not productive.
2: <laughs> it's like, Trying to use a ladder to reach the moon, and when you can't, when you don't get there, saying, "Well, the moon's unreachable," like it's right. just you just need a different tool. And using poor tools and getting poor outcomes, and then putting the blame on the other side is the wrong way to look at it, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, there's also facts, right? So I sit with her and I say, "Okay, what's different about Mexicans than this?" Well, they kill. They come over the border with their drugs, and they kill and rape innocent Americans, mm-hmm. and we know this. It's a fact. That's what they all do. Yeah. So then now it's now it's not an opinion. Now there's this fact, mm-hmm. right? There's supposed fact that's in there. Or there's nanobots in the vaccine uh-huh. that come from George Soros and Bill Gates that mm-hmm. are here to program me. We have pictures of them on YouTube that the scientists have found. So now it's, it's a different thing. So now we're talking about hard beliefs.
2: If you want to change somebody's mind or your own mind, it's important to kind of attempt to – define what does that phrase mean change your mind if you want to get in the philosophy of it you know there's two thousand years worth of conversation and it's very easy to get lost in it and eventually give up and go live in the woods and and uh and just forsake everything for uh learning how to make better chairs i get it so right but let's change your mind if we can boil it down to something there's a there's a thousand mental constructs that change whenever we are engaging with novel ambiguous information but beliefs, attitudes, and values are a pretty good way to like boil it down to something that encompasses everything. A belief is a is a is a emotional feeling that we get that comes up whenever we think about something, and we have either strong or weak confidence in, in whether or not it's true or false. So that's a belief. That's fact-based claims. Attitudes are a valenced uh, estimation of positive, negative, good, bad, and this is where oftentimes we get confused, and we. Create improper messaging because uh, if I say Donald Trump is a great president, um, that's not a belief; that's an attitude. Uh, right. That, but if I so if I argue that with you as if we're arguing a fact, we're not using the, the right kind of uh, right. rhetoric. And then there are values. So that's just like what, wh- what, where's the, what's the hierarchy of, of what's important? Uh, you know, where should the money go to an aircraft carrier or to an after-school program, and, and why do you feel that way? So if we make sure we, we know what it is we're attempting t- 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 to change, we can then right plug into the techniques to work what underlies any persuasion technique is the science of argumentation itself when we ask a person questions or we engage them with them in an argument or a deliberative framework they we use their reasoning to produce reasons in that that dynamic and this this reason is a plausible justification for what they think feel or believe and plausible means that which would be considered reasonable to their most trusted peers
1: Right, I hate those Mexicans. I call them them because they're from another place. They're speak Spanish. They have all these yeah. things. They don't speak our language.
2: So those and are the reasons. And she
1: has friends who agree. Right. They don't speak our language. Therefore, they're not us. So that right.
2: justification when you're articulating it feels like the reason why you believe what you believe but there's a there's you can there's always gonna be something deeper than that and then we can get we can go all the way down to quirks and muons with it but something that could be articulated is in there and uh, i think of like uh anti-vaxxers uh pre-covid and also during covid there are different reasons people are anti-covid anti-vaxxers but if you think about like a mmr vaccine oftentimes what's going on there the research indicates that they have a distrust of authority they this is a if you're talking about their children, this is a a foreign substance that's going to cause pain when it goes into my child. I'm losing agency. um, And all these things mount up into this visceral anxiety about this thing. You feel that bodily. And then you have no uh, articulated conscious representation of those arguments in your mind. So, but you do feel this. And when I ask you, do you intend to get vaccinated? And they say, no. They feel that very strongly. And then I ask you why. They're not going to say, because I have a fear of agency and this is uh, authority and all these things. They're going to say, because, and they'll come up with some justification or some rationalization, some reason that seems plausible to their trusted peers. Right.
1: They found a YouTube video that confirms with some kind of fact
2: right. so,
1: the thing that they feel.
2: Right. So the persuasion techniques that work well are the ones that, work almost like you're solving a mystery together. And the mystery is, what is the source of my anxiety on this issue? And there are ways to go stepwise through the the a process that helps the other person internally metacognate and bring that forth. And oftentimes it's the first time it's ever happened. And it's a powerful moment there's an epiphanous experience of going, hmm, that is kind of where this comes from. And that gives you an opportunity to reevaluate that thing.
1: Right. And they don't necessarily have to change. I mean, it could be... You know, as many people would say, I don't trust the CDC, I don't trust these big pharma companies, I I I've done a good deconstruction of capitalism, I think we're here to serve the market, and I'm gonna stick with stick with my opinion or and, and let that rule my behavior. But at least, at the very least, the person now has they know why. They're doing what they're doing, yeah. which is a better place than not. Yeah, it's, you know? it's it's
2: it's it's incredible. I've watched a lot of videos with the deep canvassing community where they, because they have everything recorded, and I will watch. In that technique, they mainly just ask questions and they evoke the, all this hid, these, these hidden motivations, and they don't say they don't go ha ha whenever somebody says something. Uh-huh. They just they just go that's mm, and and then they often try to pull real world experiences real life experiences from the person's past and when that person presents them they will feel the dissonance of hmm this real world experience doesn't match this 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 sort of stated conclusion that i've presented they don't point that out they let all that happen on the other side and i i've seen in those videos a person will go from for to against or they'll move maybe just a little bitty bit which still counts as change and or they'll just become ambivalent which in itself is a is a was a striking moment. Wow. But if you go to the beginning of the video they feel one way. You go to the end of the video they feel another. But what I, what's fascinating in those videos is that the at the end when you ask them to restate their opinion and it's different they seem frustrated with you it's like like don't aren't you haven't you been listening to me this whole time like the change mm-hmm. took place without them even being aware of it
1: is there that moment though like you know like they used to have video of like people walking into a shopping mall and getting the Gruen effect you know or people in a in a neurolinguistic programming video when they when they've uh, been anchored or a sales video Does there, is there like this moment like where their eyes kind of vibrate um, or they they get reframed,
2: you know? In these rhetorical techniques, not as much. But in others, especially in the lab, you see this all the time. They call it um, they call it the shock of recognition in psychology. Uh, one of my favorite studies was done in at Harvard um, in the 50s was by Bruner and Postman. And they had this thing where they would show people there was a single playing card on a screen. And you had to say out loud the color and the suit. And then when you said it out loud, you clicked a button and you got another card. And what they were measuring was how quickly people would press the button. And so they'd see the card and they'd say, it's a, a red ace of uh, spades. And they'd click it. They'd say, it's a black king of hearts. And they would click it. And they 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 were seeing the cards and they, their response time would start to slow. And because what they hadn't told the people was that mixed in the cards were some cards that were had been given a different the wrong color to the suit right right so and, and the response time is getting slower and slower and they would start saying things like if it was off color if it should if it was red when it should have been uh black they'd say it's purple uh they would uh start coming up with in in between colors at a certain point and that was always the point right before they they uh would say oh oh i see what you did here okay yeah yeah these you put in some off color cards yeah. and, and then the response time would go from shoot right back up to normal. Right. And that's assimilation and accommodation. They were at, at first, they were trying to assimilate what they were seeing, these anomalies that were outside their model of reality into their model of reality. They were trying to make it fit. And, right. it, it just, and once there were enough anomalies, once there was uh, they started to get that, what they call a perceptual crisis where they were trying to find a middle ground. And then it, when the brain was like, this ain't, this ain't working. We gotta, we gotta have to build a new category, and that new category is cards that have been manipulated. And once that category is sort of like fleshed out, that's when they bodily experience yeah. the epiphany, which is, oh, I see. So brains update via assimilation and accommodation constantly. We're doing it constantly. This conversation—it's happening thousands of times between both of our brains. So uh, it's like if a when a child sees a dog for the first time and. In they, you, they, they point at it. You say, that's a dog. And they, and they go, oh, thank you. But somewhere in the brain, something along the lines of non-human, animal, furry, four-legs, tail, right, dog. We are constantly, constantly, constantly doing this. And that's how we build this, these many layers of attraction to understand the world.
1: But the techniques that you're talking about now, do they favor the good?
2: <laughs> I like this I like this question I asked this question and I've gotten multiple answers across the board. I think most of these groups if it's the deep canvassers believe they're on the side of the right and you know I just so happen to share their, Values and their attitudes. So I look at them as being right. But if I try to get scientific about it, I understand that they are biased and they're trying to pull people over to to their viewpoint. But could a
1: Nazi ring the doorbell and use the same sorts of techniques to get people to believe that? I don't know. Because if what you're (laughs) actually doing is delayering somebody into their core, uh, their feelings and and engaging with them,
2: then. It's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, With fact based claims, you're. No, but with attitudes and values, probably so. Um, that's the way out of it. Is that the hopefully the what can be laterally applied from going through this and doing it on yourself is that you become more amenable to questioning whatever conclusions you've drawn, and you're not trying to live in a world of conclusions. You're trying to go through the entire processing chain, so it it should open you up to the possibility that you're that you could change your mind about just about anything, and it instead of making you certain about somebody else's view it makes you more uh able to contemplate the truth of anything and you know it gives you hopefully a, almost a superpower in that regard but could a nazi come to your door and use one of these very high-powered persuasion techniques and, and then shift your attitudes it's possible could they use it to, sh- to change your mind about a fact-based claim no because these techniques are going to land you more clo- as cl- as closer to objective reality than, than not, in those regards. But when it comes to politics or values or whatever, it's opening you up to the to another person's perspective. Uh, it's opening you up to the fact that there are other perspectives. So I don't think you could be swayed over the other side without a whole lot of uh, other experiences and other uh, tools being p- applied to you. But it will open you up. Like it's it's one of those things where if we do go and say Sean Hannity and Sean Hannity's using a good faith version of this type of rhetoric, and we're using a good faith version of this kind of rhetoric, what's going to happen is we're going to instead of me trying to be right and and Sean trying to be right, we're both going to sort of move up a little bit and see from both of our sides where's the Venn diagram, where's the overlap that, and that's that's what I hope would hope would happen.
1: Right, but the good faith is the. Uh, uh, uh the operative phrase there. Absolutely. You know, so when I, I mean, and part of the thing is, you know, as I look at at uh, uh, Bannon, say, a lot of the things that he wants are almost exactly the same as the things that I want. You know, more of local economy and a sort of my whole anarcho-syndicalist understanding of bottom-up, post-nationalist. Only his theory of change is very different, right? (laughs) His theory of change is an accelerationist apocalypse, (laughs) you know, that that leads to – I mean, and he'll be open about that, you know, this great awakening, whatever it is. So on his show, I don't believe that he is – earnestly like oh we've got to get people you know uh, uh, the the vaccines are bad and this is bad and this guy's evil it's more what things can i use to get people really upset mm-hmm. to 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 you know make the 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 armageddon happen to to accelerate the the discontent
2: how can i get you to and it goes back to the reasoning right how can i get you to agree that my anxieties are just and that's often really the, that's really all that's really trying to happening in the of these dynamic. How can I get you to agree that my anxieties are are reasonable, rational anxieties that we should all be worried about? And then from there, can we like agree on what should we do about it? It's like I think confirmation bias is often misdefined. Um, it's like you know the way I like to look at confirmation bias is it's sort of the goggles we put on when. We have a negative affect and we're attempting to justify our reaction to it. So let's say you're in a tent and you hear a sound in the woods and you're like, that's a scary sound. I think it could be a bear. I have a hunch that it's a bear. So, and I have this anxiety and I'm going to take out a flashlight and I'm going to look around and I'm going to try to confirm that my anxiety is justified. And if I find a bear then the, or I find anything that may be a bear, I can say it was just, that's, that's fine. That's a great tool we have as uh, thinking beings. But if you change the anxiety to something like, you know uh, I'm, af- I'm afraid of what's going on at the border is going to destroy America and this is an invasion. And th- my anxiety is some deep fear of the other in this regard. If I take out my flashlight and go looking for confirmation that my anxiety is just and the flashlight is the internet and the confirmation is other people that share my anxiety are saying the same things and I find them, what ends up happening is this very useful tool in one environment becomes a very detrimental tool in this new environment. I mean, beliefs,
1: I've always believed this is one of the premises of Team Human really, is that beliefs are not individual. Beliefs no. are, are are created by communities Absolutely. that you're in.
2: It's a group level thing. Like I um, I spent time at Westboro Baptist Church for the book. Uh, I, went, I spent time with 9-11 truthers, flat earthers, uh, anti-vaxxers, uh, the old school anti-vaxxers, uh, the, um, the MMR anti-vaxxers. And, uh, in those communities, I wanted to spend time with people who were still in them and sort of getting a a feel for what kept them there, but also wanted to spend time with people who had left those communities and see like, well, like I'm arguing with people on the internet all the time, but you seemed what, what convinced you. And in every case, uh, what I found were people in those communities didn't never left because they disagreed with the, uh, beliefs of the community, they, there was something else that clued them into maybe they didn't share that community's values. And then there, they were, thankfully for them, there were they, there was somebody in another community that offered their hand in some way and said, yeah, I'd like to talk to you about this. I'd like to hear what you think. And they did it in a way that was safe. And there that started this incremental process of them realizing, oh, this discord I'm feeling in this community is not because there's something wrong with me there's something something wrong with the community and they eventually were able to to find a a way out the with west the people at westboro um uh, with megan phelps roper there was a lot of um they had become really draconian about how women could live their lives inside that group with zach phelps uh he had Trump was wanting to go to to uh be a nurse and he had hurt his back and they wouldn't let him uh take care of his back in a certain way and that that was sort of the first anomaly that, that was almost like the first playing card that was off color for them and that that put them on a on a search for hmm is if i can question if there's one thing that i disagree with is it possible that there are more things i disagree with and when they were there were people outside the community that that offered them other perspectives they started to take on those perspectives and then look at themselves and it sort of just changed them. Same thing with, um, the nine 11 truther I spent so much time with Charlie beach. He had, uh, he went with a group of nine 11 truthers to ground zero and met as part of, it was part of a, um, a, uh, BBC reality program where they had like, uh, five different truthers got together and took a road trip. And he, saw, they went to the, the crash sites. They went to the towers. They went, talked to the they learned how to fly airplanes, they learned how to uh they talked to demolitions experts, they talked to the um the architects, uh, they talked to the people who were at the Pentagon, and they even met with widows and widowers. And what was astonishing in that uh dynamic was everyone except for Charlie in that situation when they were presented with all this counter evidence. Uh, they doubled down. They they were like, okay, these people talking to us, actors. These things they're showing, they always had some way out of it. Like they they found some sort of some way to maintain their beliefs. Whereas Charlie, every time he got questioned, he started going, hmm. He started feeling more and more wrong until eventually he he started to have a crisis where he started to, he really started to change his mind. He knew that changing his mind meant he would have to be at odds with the community. So. What often happens in that case is the person first tries to change their own community. They'll say like, "Okay, I think we may be seeing this wrong. Maybe there may be something a- a- amiss here." And that's what he did, but he was immediately excommunicated. In fact, they, they did all sorts of heinous things to him, um, and they just tried to destroy him for just for just for simply saying, "I think the group is wrong here." But the reason he was able to do that, and the others weren't was at the same time he was a member of a 9-11 truth community, he was also a member of a community called um, Truth Juice, which is they're more into uh, sort of the fractal holographic psychedelic version of truth. And he was talking in those communities, and he was gaining sort of a reputation in, the, in those communities. And what he had was a social safety net. And Brooke Harrington told me if there was an E equals MC square of social psychology, it's that SD is greater than PD. Social death is more is more threatening more terrifying than physical death and we will default to belonging goals above accuracy goals whenever that's presented to us it's 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 more dangerous to us to be ostracized and to our reputation to be ruined than to than actually we're more afraid of that than physical death itself
1: when i feel people using that on me when i if i question a group's belief mm-hmm. that i'm in and then i start experiencing that social anxiety they start Im- imposing that uh, uh, threat of ostracization on me i start to, to question the fundamental belief set more cuz i'm like well wait a minute you know that lady doth protest too much kind of a thing <laughs> you know like like now i've been i've been occasionally questioning whether or not automated blockchain technology will really save humanity mm-hmm. from economic and and other forms of inequality or whether it's m- mostly a ponzi scheme that's helping a bunch of anonymous you know tech bros make a whole lot of money <laughs> and people are getting really upset yeah you know by 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 that like it's as if i'm you know betraying the core values of everything yeah. that we hold that we hold dear and it's like well then that makes me that spins me out further then i'm like oh well <laughs> Maybe there is a problem here if yeah. this is so so belief oriented.
2: Yeah, this is where this is how schisms take place in religious communities. Eventually, enough people go. I don't. I think there's another way of doing this. It's how people go move from group to group. But you have to be to to like to not f- fall back in and double down. You have to be privileged enough to have multiple uh, groups to which you are, oh, your affinity, right? Uh, if you have only one or, or two or three, it's very difficult for you to get over that hump of fear of ostracism. And it, like you and I both move in m- multiple groups. And so we can piss one group off and be excommunicated we have the safety of knowing, well, that's fine. I have all these other groups that'll understand where I'm coming from.
1: And hopefully in most of the groups we're in are sort of, you know, Robert Anton Wilson aware <laughs> groups, right? <laughs> that it's like, okay, we're going to go play in this reality tunnel for a while. But then you're allowed to play in all these other ones. And, as long as you understand that your reality tunnel is only that, uh, you're a whole lot, uh, uh, a whole lot safer, if you will. It's uh, uh, le- less in danger yeah. of 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 loot getting lost.
2: In psychology, they call it pre-contemplation versus contemplation. Like this idea of like there could be multiple subjective realities, and I'm only in one at any given time. That is not something that we innately just and no uh, in the book I talk about it. <laughs> the, they
1: are not bored with that insight
2: <laughs> so it, it, if you talk about a specific domain if a person has not reached that understanding there's a couple word terms for it I use a, t- a story in the book to co- to cover this in a way that I feel like everybody. It's very apolitical, and I love it. It's the it's the dress. Do you remember the dress? The dress that you'd see. Some people saw as blue, and some people saw. Oh as gold. yeah. So I went to NYU. There's a whole. Ch- I've been devoted a whole chapter to this. I can't get enough of it because it, it illustrates everything. The dress
1: me. was gold, by the way. I mean, <laughs> see? it was gold. You see what I'm saying. I'm so, sure.
2: So, so like, okay, yeah. So and I'll
1: fight you to the death okay, that. Yeah, over that. And
2: let's imagine that you eventually, like, <laughs> you your own team. Uh, white gold. and gold, I'm on yeah. team blue and black. Uh, I have no choice but to see it the way I see it. That's how I see it. That's your problem. And then if we get into an argument about it, <laughs> yeah. where the point of the argument is I got to be right and you got to yeah. be wrong, then neither one of us is going to get have an opportunity. Because in a debate, the only person who wins is the person who, who changes in no way whatsoever. Right. Only the loser changes their mind and nobody wants to be a loser. So if if we enter into a dynamic where it's debate... This is over for us. We're not going to escape this loop that we're in. Right. And neither one of us is going to get to the truth because I want you to see what I see and believe that what I see is the only way to see it. And so do you. Neither one of us is going to get to the actual thing that's happening there, which is that the reason why we see it differently. Like we have no, we're not even attempting to understand why we see it differently. We are not engaging in what they call cognitive empathy. So and the reason we see it differently, and I talked to the, I spent, Week a week with these researchers, because they eventually re- recreated this with socks and crocs, and it's one of my favorite scientific studies of all time. they the reason people see that differently is because when the brain uh, feels that something is overexposed, uh, whether in reality or in an image, um, the brain will, do it. They call it subtracting the luminant. So if it's overexposed in, in yellow light, you'll subtract the yellow. If it's overexposed in blue light, you'll subtract the blue, and so on. This is very useful for say like um, you're in a in, at dusk. You're trying to determine if a fruit is is ripe, or if you're
0: just looking right. in a closet,
2: you can't tell if your sweater's green. It's it's helpful to either increase or decrease the luminant. This something this happens without our we don't get to do this by choice. It happens to us,
1: but it's like a, it's a brain, it's a cognitive Adobe filter lever. Exactly.
2: And we have (laughs) we're not aware it's happening. And all we get is the result. Like, uh, the process is outside of our conscious awareness. Right. And when I take that result and I say, this is how it is, um, I can feel pretty confident about that because otherwise I'd have to be denying the truth in my own eyes. Well, in this case, your experiences with sunlight determine whether or not you see it one way or the other. If you've spent more time outdoors around windows, if you're work, if you a day person or, or a morning person, and just most of the things that you have seen that have been overexposed have been overexposed in natural light, which is mostly in the blue color, spe- uh, yellow spectrum, uh, blue. Blue, daytime, blue, daylight. Blue. Yeah. Whereas if you spend more time at night around incandescent light, uh, things are more exposed overexposed in yellow light so right. when i this image and there's he's uh um pascal Wallace uh, the neuroscientist he said this is probably a one in 10 billion image like uh, out of every 10 billion images you'll have one that is this perfectly ambiguous <laughs> it is so down the line it's just something to do with that phone that time of day that dress that 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 mm-hmm. the weather of that day and when Brains see this they will disambiguate it differently. It's an ambiguous image and you're going to use your priors to disambiguate it If your priors are most of the time things are overexposed in this kind of light You subtract the yellow and you get blue if if it's the other kind of light you subtract the blue and you get yellow And so that means that your life choices and your experiences and the happenstance of your existence before you saw that dress determines the dress that you see and You have no idea. That's why you see it that way. So when I meet another person who disagrees with the way I see it, it seems impossible and they seem insane, stupid, wrong, all the things that happen when we get into any kind of argument online. And they call this, um, they call that kind of disagreement. They call it surf pad. Basically what it means is different life experiences leads lead to different perceptions, which lead to different conclusions. And if we argue with each other at the level of our conclusions, nothing will be gained because we are what we need to do in that situation is argue at the level of how did we reach those conclusions and that's the way i I like present sort of the nature of disagreement itself and how people can have uh, like if you change it to vaccines like there's a reason why that person has this anxiety and there's a reason why you don't have that anxiety why did you just so blindly trust science and to get injected and they they didn't there's a reason why and there's something valuable in trying to determine where they're coming from, and where you're coming from, that oh, both some of, of them us have are right.
1: From, some of them are right. It's not a, it's right. not a it's, stupid thing to be. There's myocarditis yeah. that kids are getting from the thing and getting sick, or, or the virus might have come out of a frigging lab in China now. Uh, there's a long I mean,
2: history of, of weird things happening in the pharmaceutical world. Uh, there's a long history of governments doing weird shit, like uh, to, giving to,
1: blankets with smallpox to black people. Right. And, I so mean,
2: the cognitive empathetic approach is to say you. There's no reason for you to be ashamed that you have this anxiety, but at the same time, what is the truth of the matter and how can we figure that out together? And so a debate would result in both groups getting nothing. Whereas a conversation that attempted to understand where is this difference coming from gets you everywhere.
1: Right. But I want to, I want to get to our little team human movement for a minute and our ability of team team human and, and all the other kinds of, of teams like this to, um, uh, Create positive change, sure. And uh, you know, uh, people have been pushing me for so long to make like Team Human into a movement, and I've always rebelled against that because movements are movements, and I've always believed that we could, um, we could engender what you would call cascading change. Yes, and yes. that it's such, and 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 it just individually wherever we go just being who we are and engaging with people as team humanites, that does it. That that right? If we can, can it we can, can tip the point. You um, know?
2: Um yeah, in the book we if we you eventually land is social change. It's so it's everything that everything discussed beforehand, then well how does this scale up to very large groups of people, nations. And, uh, you know, you, you could, if your are very large group is a company, that's one thing or an institution, but eventually we get up to the nations, maybe the whole world. And this happens. There's a, um, there's something that, that's called, um, critical juncture theory covers a lot of this. Um, there's also, but also it's like something in biology called punctuated equilibrium, where you see, if you look at the timeline of human social change, it's long periods of status quo, Extremely rapid change and then another period of status quo and this happens routinely and the change that what's astonishing is that some of the biggest changes even in American history uh, Took place just over the course of a decade or 12 years 20 years, maybe Uh, It could be 200 years of opposition to an idea and then everyone changes their mind in 10 years and they feel the other way about the thing which indicates that this is possible in all domains and uh, we saw it with same-sex marriage, but we also saw, the, saw it with suffrage and uh, civil rights and um, marijuana laws, and uh, just the, just it's all it happens over and over again. Twelve years is about the average that it takes. So, what usually le- what causes that to happen so quickly and so strangely? And is that the the status quo is stable because the network is stable in a certain way. So uh, this is one of those hot takes that uh, may end up causing beef, but um, Malcolm Gladwell is very wrong about all of this. That's fine. That's fine. At the time he wrote his books, that was the dominant um, understanding in social in social science. So no no hit against Gladwell. It's a hit against we've updated the science since then. It's not a matter of, co- of connectors or mavens or anything like that. It's, it's a matter of the network itself. And the, so the way this uh, was made... Uh, there's two ways that this can make sense. If we're going to talk about cascades. Uh, one, the easiest way is to talk about uh, if you've ever tried to get into a classroom or a restaurant or something and there's somebody wait there's a bunch of people waiting at the door and uh, and then like I, I like to use the classroom example because this happens to me a lot of times in college. like the you're waiting to get the door and there's a whole group of people, the whole class is outside and then like the door opens up and the professor's like, what are you doing?" And then like everybody goes in and, they could, and so it turns out the door was open the whole time. What happens there? This is a classic cascade where it's an internal signal versus external signal. The first person that shows up, they don't check the door. And this is probably because of their previous experiences in that situation. They, they, may have opened a door one time and uh, there was a class already in there and they got embarrassed.
1: Or they might have just wanted to wait for a phone call and they yeah. happen to be standing outside the room and other people interpret it that the yeah. that they so, checked the so
2: door. That, that yeah. one person has an internal motivation for why they're not opening the door. Right. But the second person that shows up, they have more information. They have a person waiting at the door. Mm-hmm. So their internal signal plus their external signal, let's say they, they are the kind of person who – in the past, has also done this, and they see one person waiting. That's plenty of information for me not to try to open the door.
1: Right. Well, plus, if it's someone like me, I'll see them there, and I'll think, I wonder if that door is open, but I don't want to insult that person by trying
2: the door. (laughs) So in cascade theory, they call these thresholds of conformity, or individual thresholds. So there might be a second person that would show up and be like, I don't care what this person is doing, I'm going to open the door. But let's say their threshold isn't high enough for that, they become the second person waiting. Well now, it's there's two people. There's two people waiting in. to go in. Right. Most people's thresholds of conformity are not such that they're going to test the waters when they see two people. You'd have to have somebody who's a real iconoclast rebelizer. I love
1: those people though where there's yeah. 20 people waiting and one person walks in and he goes, "Hey, the door's that's open." That's right.
2: You'd need that person <laughs> to break the cascade. But yeah. if that's not the person who comes up as person 3, a three-person cascade is incredibly difficult to break, and what you end up with is a third person, a fourth person, a fifth person, and they're all using the people ahead of them to determine what they're going to do. What's important there is the network has determined the behavior. So to break that cascade, new information would have to be added, or a very rebellious person has needs to come in and, and open the door.
1: You know, it, it it may seem like an odd question, but I'm wondering... Do you do you believe in something else? I don't I don't like to say like are you are you a spiritual person? Do you believe that there's something going on here other than you know, biological beings with network effects and using rhetoric to blah blah blah? I mean, is there's is the are we living in a moral universe? Is there is there something happening? Are we created? Do you believe in stuff?
2: Stuff. Uh, (laughs) i've never heard it it constructed like that uh stuff other than stuff i um, guess i'm open for sure but Uh i but i but i'm super skeptical at the same time uh i try to stay evidence-based and uh, but the good thing about being evidence-based is saying uh we don't know what we don't know and there's a whole lot left to to figure out i love playing around in, in those models like uh you know, uh, panspermia and uh, mycelium networks. And uh-huh. uh, I love uh, multiple multiple dimensionalities and space-time weirdness. I love playing around all those worlds. Um, I would I definitely don't have any strong confidence to commit to anything. I, I try to say pretty scientific method about it all.
1: But do you think it would matter, given the, how much of our reality is shaped by what we believe, do you think it's possible that if we don't get ourselves to believe in like life after death or something before we die, then
2: we don't get to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not currently in that camp. Um, but, uh, I, but I do. I mean, you know
1: what I'm asking. Right? I mean that in a bigger way, almost like if uh, uh, are we living in kind of this godless universe because we don't believe in God, you know? Because we don't, we don't. Uh, uh, and if we could, if we can somehow, you know, change our minds to accept the possibility, even just of a, a Robert Anton Wilson level of magical weirdness to human existence. Don't get me wrong.
2: I love magical weirdness. I think that I think commitment. I think absolute commitment to any dogmatic view is is bad for us.
1: Scientism among them. Yeah. Right. We, just,
2: we have a, science is just an, is an epistemology. It's a method mm-hmm. at, at getting, that gives results in a very particular domain. And that which science cannot address shouldn't be thrown into the argument that you're using science to address. I only feel friction inside me whenever people are, are trying to be, Absolutely certain about something when, that, when I'm being told this amulet does a thing, and I'm like, "What's the evidence for that?" And they're like, "I just think it does." I'm like, "Well, that's 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 good,
1: good for you." That's that's not. <laughs> that's,
2: <laughs> but like, I feel like if the big question here is, if I'll just reframe it, is like, how do we get off this planet and join the galactic civilization that might be out there? There's a lot of stuff we're going to have to accomplish and get over down here before we get to there, right? I feel very optimistic that we're on a that we can that we can. I also understand that there's probably there are probably many planets with sentient civilizations that didn't get figure out their shit fast enough and their sun absorbed them before they had space a spacefaring race. I'm in the camp that's like, whatever the answers are out there, can we get to the, can we build the technology and the spaceships and and the uh, cyberpunk beautiful uh, alternate subjective dimensions that are that will allow us to crack open those mysteries of the universe Uh, like what work can i be doing to be a positive force in that sort of change you know i'm a huge fan of james burke right and i try to live by one of his credos which is there's nothing uh so complicated that you can't understand it as long as it's explained clearly enough and then his second part of that is what is it then that you would like uh explained and he said, whatever it is you want to change in the world, start there. And I feel that very strongly. Uh, and I feel that if we're all doing that and we're all persistent, uh, that among, within that persistence, some of us will be lucky enough to crank up the engines of change and see that change start to take place within our lifetimes. And if it's, if it's, if it's getting on these space arcs and, and going out past the Andromeda, uh, work on that. <laughs> and working on that might be very simple like it might be just making sure that the garbage is getting picked up in your neighborhood because like if it isn't then we're not we're, there's no way we're getting to space right if you've got a homeless people in your uh, immediate vicinity that you're passing by the way of work that's a problem that's got to be fixed we're never going to get to a, the andromeda galaxy with that going on
1: unless the way to get to the andromeda galaxy is is drinking a certain vision plant you know sitting with your friends in a circle in the dark under the stars and you're there
2: hey i'm i'm into it just (laughs) just from the perspective of like that's how you mess with the systems of assimilation and accommodation so that you um are you scramble up all your certainties and then you become open to change in a way that you weren't before i'm definitely super into it right and right and one of the things like uh one of the things that really hurts us right now as a species is um, they they call it the default mode network. I'm sure you've heard this. The the default mode network is the part of the brain that uh, when the volume of that part of the brain is turned down, you feel less uh, beholden to that which identifies you as not what that, which identifies you as you and not someone else, that which identifies you as being in one group and not another. When you are, when you turn up the default mode network, you become very concerned about all that. So if you, psychedelics meditation tends to turn down the volume of the default mode network. And the result of that is you start feeling the truth of, oh, I'm just atoms and molecules in this uh, arrangement that's uh, amongst others doing another arrangement. And you start to feel that oneness. And those spiritual experiences that come out of that Almost always lead to man we should we should really I'm really worried about a bunch of bullshit <laughs> like that does not yeah. matter because I'm so focused on reputation management I'm so focused on identifying I'm so focused on tribal concerns and signaling that I'm more concerned with that than doing anything of the that either puts value into the system or takes uh, poison out of the system. so I am a full advocate of however you get there. Uh, so yeah, what I'm saying is, yes, let's tune in. <laughs> <Turn> on, let's <laughs> in. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Well, thank you, David McGrady, for being a true member of Team Human yeah. and uh, changing our minds, among
2: others. I cannot thank you enough. I love talking with you, and I love everything you're doing, and I'm a huge proponent of this massive effort. let changed the world. Thanks for being on Team
1: Human. Our guest today was David McRaney, author of the upcoming book, How Minds Change. You can find out more about him and all of our guests by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.